0: Come on, I got a place for you. Should relax those eyes a bit. Seeing sucks. <laughs> oh, you gotta be kidding! It sucks. You can say that. Sitting here in these prime viewing seats. Yes. Forget your eyes. Get your head examined. I'm serious.
1: This is honestly the most ridiculous scene in the movie, but it also illustrates the frustration of having to learn a new a new sense. It's. Kind of funny, but also really strange. They're in a strip club, if you haven't seen it. Welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we are going to explore sensation and perception. This episode's movie is entitled At First Sight, a rom com, maybe? More like a, more like a romantic dramedy in in my in in my opinion. It's not that funny, so it's not really a rom com in the sense of you know nineteen ninety nine sensibilities when this movie came out. But it is an interesting exploration of real life events, and we'll get into those real life events as we discuss the movie in this episode. But to give you some background here, the writers of this movie include Dr. Oliver Sacks. Now, you may be familiar with that name. Oliver Sacks was a neuropsychologist who wrote about significantly interesting neurological cases. He wrote Awakenings, the book that the movie was then based on, and The movie At First Sight, which came out in 1999, um, was a further exploration of another book that Oliver Sacks wrote. So we'll get into all of that stuff. But he wrote uh, a, a piece of this. And I'll tell you why. Steve Levitt also wrote this script with Oliver Sacks. And the two of them put together a fictionalized version of a real life man named Shirley Jennings. Shirley Jennings. Shurl to most. Shirl. I like saying Shrill. Uh so Shirle Jennings was a real dude who had very similar uh had a very similar situation to our main character, Virgil Adamson, played by Val Kilmer. And that's why Oliver Sacks and Steve Levitt wrote this story to explore what this might be like in a kind of love story way. Right? So that's the movie that we're talking about now, inspired by a true story, not based on a true story, inspired by a true story from the mind of the man who knew the real Cheryl Jennings. I think it's quite, White, cool. Uh, that Oliver Sacks was so was so great in the 1990s, making these films. That's it's fun as a psychologist. It's fun because this movie plays a really big role in when I teach sensation and perception. I use it as the movie that uh, my students use to write a film analysis. This is like the best example of that kind of movie for this particular kind of critical thinking exercise i love it i love it uh erwin winkler directed this movie just to round out the top uh crew there uh mira sorvino plays amy bennick based on sheryl jennings real life partner of barbara kelly mcgillis About 15 years after her amazing role in Top Gun plays Jenny Adamson, Virgil's sister, sighted sister, to be clear here. So Kelly helps Virgil live his life in upstate New York, uh, which is a little bit more quiet, a little bit more regular for him as a blind man. Virgil as a blind man. A couple of other people that uh, make appearances in this movie as side characters. Steven Weber plays Amy's ex-husband, Duncan, in a real true jerk role. Uh, Bruce Davison plays uh, Doctor Charles Aaron, the doctor uh, based on the Doctor Who, the ophthalmologist who created the real life procedure that got Cheryl Jennings his life, or his uh, not his life back, but his his vision back. Uh, so you might re- remember Bruce Davison as the senator in the following year in two thousand in X Men. So uh, a little bit more of a va. Of higher marquee role (laughs) than this, this movie, which came out the year prior. And then a lovely bit role. He's in two scenes, a lovely bit role by Nathan Lane playing Dr. Phil Webster, a, a psychologist who helps, uh, blind children, uh, navigate their world as a blind child. Right. So, uh, helping them you know develop strategies to enhance their other senses while also recognizing that it is a sighted world in which they live, of course, so Virgil and Amy go and see him for help once Virgil gets his sight back I think it's it's a it's a lovely little role, and you heard a little bit in the intro cold open where they go to a strip club and uh, Virgil says, seeing sucks, and you know what, sometimes I'm going to agree with him, I'm going to agree with him there, so let's jump into this amazing story, we'll give you uh, you more background, we'll talk about all of the sensation and the perception stuff that's in this movie, it's chock full, like I said, I use it for my teaching, I can't wait for this episode, let's jump in. My guest host today is Dr. Katie-Ann Skogsberg. Katie-Ann is an associate professor of behavioral neuroscience at Center College. Her research area is in the voluntary visual attention discipline, and she teaches courses in psychology and behavioral neuroscience. Welcome to the show, Katie-Ann.
2: Thanks, Alex. Um, I'm happy to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking uh, talking about movies with you.
1: Well, I am happy to have you on, and we'll like what I like to do with my guests is to get a sense of their movie-loving value on the movie-loving scale. So, I want to first briefly ask you what your thoughts on movies and films are in general, and... If you use them in your teaching, how do you use them in your teaching?
2: Okay. Um, So movies in general, this is a great question. I tend to be more on the brain candy side of movies. Um, You know, life Mm. is complicated and challenging. And so when Mm -hmm. I watch a movie, it's generally... It's usually for fun, okay, uh, and and I tend to lean towards
1: the the
2: the fluff, to be honest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. That's absolutely fine.
2: Which is funny because my husband loves horror movies, so we we just watch movies separately
1: sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I love but, it.
2: You, you know, uh, I, I do use them in teaching one of one of the classes that I had the most fun with was um, a senior seminar class where mm-hmm. uh, the whole premise of the class was where students would choose a film um, that had some sort of psychological component in it. OK. And uh, then they would find uh, the research that was associated with that, an actual oh, research paper. Very cool. And they would dissect the film to figure out what was, you know, accurate and what was inaccurate. And mm-hmm. of course there were some things that were really off the rails and then there's some that were, that were pretty accurate. So um, that was one of the most fun classes I ever taught. And I would love to do that again. Only we don't get to teach senior seminar very often. So,
1: uh, I. See. so yeah.
2: OK. Fair. And that also had
1: very cool. That
2: also made me um, uh, get to watch or helped me get to watch a lot of movies I wouldn't have watched otherwise.
1: OK. So, yeah. Uh, so after their reports or while you were um, curating the list of movies. When did you watch them?
2: As they were curating the list.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. But very I cool.
2: I, I generally wanted to know what to expect uh, in their in their presentations. So okay. they did presentations where they had clips of the film, and okay. then they talked about how this represents this thing or that thing. And yeah,
1: I love that uh, because while I we don't hear it. Very often on the show for specific assignments, I do love um, this different approach, right? So the students curated the list. You had to watch them to know what they were expecting. But then they gave presentations and they used the clips in their presentations. I love that. I might actually borrow that. Um, for the next time I use uh, because I generally have film analysis papers but you know this might be a, another way to uh, engage students in their critical thinking but also their presentation skills very good oh my god hi
3: My turn to apologize I should have told you I was blind
4: well we're even apologies cancel each other out mm. Do you want to come in? I, I'm sorry, I just sure. got out of the shower. I have to get changed.
3: I promise I won't look.
4: Uh-huh. Um, I sort of spilled some stuff on the floor. Here, why don't you uh, sit down on the bed, and I'm just going to go change you right back. All right. You know, you didn't have to come all the way back up here just to apologize.
3: Oh, well, it's in the neighborhood.
4: You were in the
3: neighborhood. Oh, all right, I'll confess. I was watching a hockey game with my dog, and, um... I don't know, I was describing you. What? Yeah, I was describing you to my dog and how great you smelled, and my sister thought I was describing a cake. Anyway, (laughs) I just started thinking of you here in the midst of your tofu shake and really, really boring yogurt, and thought maybe you'd want to get some fresh air and take a walk around town Just see what we see.
4: See what we see.
3: Figure of speech.
4: I mean, right here, right now.
3: Great. I'm blind and you're deaf. What a
4: pair.
1: Let's jump into this film because there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about in this movie. So, at first sight, came to uh, our discussion here. I did something a little bit different. Normally, listeners, I ask the guests to give me some suggestions on what films that they would like to talk about. And this time I said, you know what? I really need to have a podcast episode on at first sight because I use it every time I teach sensation and perception. Who's with me? And Katie Ann, you raised your hand. So I want to get your sense of first why you raised your hand and then what you what your process was in coming about uh, coming to this film and uh, all the details associated with that
2: well um, I raised my hand because I saw an opportunity to hang out with the cool kids
1: (laughs) I appreciate that (laughs) you are one of the cool kids though
2: oh oh, well thank you Um, but you know it it seemed like a great opportunity I had this memory of having used uh film in, in my senior seminar class and I thought, oh, I would like to get back to that again. Mm-hmm. And uh I hadn't seen the film and it sounded like something fun and interesting. And I do, um, although I'm I am i have never worked directly with patients, um, mm-hmm. I do teach a lot about visual perception and uh visual disorders sure. and that kind of thing. So I thought this would be a, this would be an interesting film to watch and, and to I mean, it has Val Kilmer in it, too. So, you know, come on. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's sad we don't get to see him anymore due to his uh, yeah. throat cancer. But yeah, it's yeah. a solid 90s Val Kilmer. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: So the so I put the film title out there. And did you know that it was a an, an, an Oliver Sacks story?
2: I did not. I did not. Um of course I looked it up on IMDb and and mm-hmm. uh then I saw that it was, you know, was by Oliver Sachs and so I thought, okay, well maybe this will be a little bit uh more accurate and mm-hmm. uh you know, more I I was more invested in it than the typical Hollywood film because sure. a lot of times Hollywood gets things wrong. I mean, Lucy, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. That that movie just makes me Anyway,
1: yeah, our so, mutual friend uh, for for longtime listeners of the show, our mutual friend, uh, Christina Reagan, joined me to rage watch that episode for sure. Um, <laughs> check that episode out on uh, how much Lucy gets wrong.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it was it, knowing that it was based on um, one of the short stories from a, an anthropologist on Mars. Mm-hmm um you know I, I i enjoy oliver sacks i still have a a very soft spot in my heart for him and and for his his writing and so i thought well this could be this could be good this could be interesting but of course you know movies always have to make it a little bit more dra- dramatic and yeah. yeah it was based on and I'm doing the air quotes here since this is a uh, uh, audio um, <laughs> based on a true story.
1: yeah the the trailer does the uh, old text on the screen inspired. By a true story, yeah. Yeah, there are differences between Virgil, Val Kilmer's character, and Cheryl Jennings, the real-life person. We'll get into those those similarities and differences um, as we go through. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, you told me, Katie-Ann, that you watched this recently with your mm-hmm. sister. How did that go?
2: Mm-hmm. Um- she found it as I well. I think I discussed with with you a little bit ahead of time. We both found it entirely watchable. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that it was, you know, it's not a movie that I'm going to say you should rush out and and uh, you know uh, buy the the DVD if anybody still does that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it was entertaining. We we enjoyed it and. It was fun to be able to talk to somebody who really doesn't know anything about visual attention and perception, yeah. but was still curious mm-hmm. um, ab- about the film. And And she had some interesting insights about seeing the world or trying to understand the world through someone else's, well, literally not eyes, <laughs> you know, yeah, not their yeah, perceptual, absolutely. but their, their other perceptual experience and trying to see the world from someone else's Perspective, that's the word I'm looking for.
1: Yeah, I think the the film does a decent job of showing the sighted world what different things blind individuals have to do and have to deal Mm -hmm. with and what would happen if someone got got their sight back. And of course, the uh, differences in real life and the movie sort of bleed a little bit um the, this starts to get fuzzy as to what is true and what it, or what is uh what was capable in the 1990s uh for this and, uh and then um what happens uh after the procedure so I, I like hearing that side did your did your sister ask you whether or not this was possible uh in real life if this was an actual medical uh, experience treatment?
2: No, um, she did not ask if that was possible. She mm. seemed to accept it. Okay. And and I don't know if that was just a suspension of belief because it was a film. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, uh, no, she didn't. And I did struggle with it a little bit conceptually thinking, okay, well, if he had retinitis pigmentosa, then that's a, you know, degeneration of the retina and there. But then they made the argument, well, you know, he, I I don't know. They didn't know how much it had progressed and what did he have to lose. So, yeah, yeah, it's you had this. It's a movie. You have to suspend some belief.
1: Mm-hmm. So. so I talked about how I use this movie in my sensation and perception class, uh, and I've been using it now for the past two years. This is my third time. This was my third time using it fully. I had skipped I had skipped a time. Um, so I would used it and then I used a different movie and then I came back to it. And it's just a really good deep well for the film analysis papers that I ask my students to complete after watching this movie. Uh, how might you uh, jump in to use this movie in your sensation and perception, Gideon?
2: Well, this is where I, I want to give a shout out to uh, Nestor Matthews, who's oh, a okay. uh, professor. I believe he's at Denison.
1: Um okay.
2: And he gave a talk at NITOP and I'm blanking National National Institute of Teaching of Psychology. Believe Is that's that right.
1: I believe that's right. <laughs>
2: okay. Um, just last year he gave a talk on this about using um sensation and perception or teaching it from a, a disability standpoint. Mm-hmm. And uh I've taught sensation and perception since I started teaching mm-hmm. um, you know, back when the dinosaurs were in class. Um <laughs> and some smart dinosaurs. uh and, and yeah and it it opened a a new window you know or new perspective to me to teach a class from a disability standpoint mm-hmm. and so i think that was my first thought with and that's another reason why i raised my hand and said mm-hmm. um, you know i'd love to do this because i thought wow well, i could integrate that into this refreshed version of sensation perception that yeah. i'm going to be
1: using yeah and i and love so, that perspective i love yeah. that perspective
2: I, I just this last year um, incorporated an immense world, the Ed okay. Young book about mm-hmm. perc- the perceptual abilities of of uh, other critters, uh, creatures, other animals,
4: <laughs> um,
2: and that really blew my students' minds. So I thought, wow, that would be a really interesting way to to integrate, you know, different abilities. Mm-hmm. And again, coming back to this film, uh, there was one moment in it where uh, he. I, I can't remember whether it's um, Virgil or his, his sister, but basically said, you know, he doesn't have a disability. This is, you know, he's adapted to to his environment. This is this is his world. Yeah, you know. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. And,
2: and that kind of struck me as, you know, he he doesn't need to be fixed. He he's fine the way he is. Mm-hmm. And um, th- th- this is a little bit of a digression, uh, but I think it adds to the conversation. At least in my um, context is uh the town that i live in and where i teach also has one of the first and still one of the remaining schools for the deaf
1: oh wow and
2: so we we have a very large deaf community here and so um that Mm -hmm. whole argument about you know deaf culture Mm -hmm. and having a you know that they don't they their their hearing is just what the way they were born and the way they are, and that Mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be fixed. Right. And so that really kind of struck me as well. Um, And I thought, well, the perspective of Amy, the other character, the the love interest in the Mm -hmm. movie of where she's like, well, but if we could give him the chance to see if we could fix him, you know, wouldn't it be worth it? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to see?
3: Sure. Like, uh, there's a, Life on Mars, or... They're not the aliens built the pyramids.
4: Okay, but if there were a chance, if something could be done to give you sight, would you take it?
3: (laughs) What are we talking about here? (laughs)
4: Um, I saw that article on Dr. Aaron. Who? He's he's the leading eye surgeon on the eastern seaboard and I called him up at Manhattan Iron Air, and I spoke to him about
3: you. I'm sorry, you, you call this guy?
4: Yes, and he just faxed me back, and he said that he would be very excited to see you, because he thinks that in your case there might be a chance of reversal. What do you think?
3: I guess I'm, uh, I forgot that it's helped the handicap week.
4: I-I-I thought you'd be excited. I-What's what, the problem?
3: Disappointing Amy. There is no goddamn problem.
4: Hi. Hi, Jenny. did great work today. See you tomorrow. Okay, thanks. Hi. Amy, right? Right. Um, could I speak to you for a minute? Yeah, something wrong. Well, there's something that I don't understand. I saw that article on Dr. Aaron and I called him and he's willing to see Virgil. In fact, he's really anxious to see him, but when I told Virgil about him, he acted as if I was trying to... What don't you understand? Well, if I had spent almost my entire life blind and there was even the remotest possibility that I could regain my sight, I would be all over that. When there's something that you've adapted to, accepted, you go and change it without knowing the consequences? We're very happy here, Amy. Virgil has everything he needs. Wait. Everything that he needs? Does he need to go through life blind if there's a possibility that he could see? Look, I would give him my own eyes if it would help him see, but it won't. I learned a long time ago to stop believing in miracles. Look, I see where you're coming from. Yes, you do, and Virgil doesn't. Why can't you accept that?
5: He spent the first eight years of his life having his eyes probed, pierced, prodded, poked at by doctors, faith healers, spiritualists, shaman, medicine men. My father had him lined up outside the door. It hurt and disappointed all of us, and it
4: almost
2: killed him. He doesn't need to go through that again. So now maybe you understand. But did it really fix him? You know, did it really? Yeah. So I I know we're going to get to that later.
1: Yeah, that I mean that is uh, uh, uh that is definitely a existential question that is offered by the movie and I don't think it does a very good job of being answered by the movie and I think yeah. Yeah. we can yeah. definitely pass that off to um oliver sacks as one of the writers of the the screenplay not necessarily knowing how to best do this in a cinematic way right a cinematic way as opposed sure. to his short story which again is just a short story it's not even a full-length novel about Sheryl, and then like fuzzing the lines of of what is actually capable and then an At the end of the day, Val Kilmer is a sighted person, Uh, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. as much as he spent time with Sheryl Jennings to understand the process and what happened and and just really how Sheryl looked when he was blind, like... How, where do I put my head? How do I look, mm-hmm. at, look at people, right? Where's, mm-hmm. my, where's my gaze? I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. folks, um, because these are obviously what others observe about people, and uh, especially blind people, and where their eyes are l- quote-unquote looking, not actually seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I just think that, that it was a missed opportunity to explore that question of yeah. was it really something that Virgil needed? I think the movie attempts to t- tie a little bow around that with the, uh, I want to say, epilogue when Virgil stays in New York City with his new mm-hmm. seeing eye dog and attempts, There's are there are what are, appears to be glimmers of a rekindled romance between mm-hmm. Amy and Virgil, but that's about it. I mean, the movie centers mm-hmm. around a love story, so there's not much you can do, right?
2: Yeah, that I I think that's that was one of the things that leapt out to me too. Is and you know Val Kilmer is a very good actor, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was a director issue or a, a a you know some sort of continuity error or whatever, but it seemed like there were. Sorry, I, I can't help but jump into the critical role, <laughs> but there was there there was certainly you mentioned Val Kilmer being a sighted actor. There were certainly scenes where he was making icon contact, where he was, you know, certainly fixating on things. And yeah. it's like it, knowing the, the disorder itself and uh, the actual going back and reading background on, on um, Cheryl and, and also even the short story, um, which is a fictionalized version of,
1: right. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, it,
2: you know, that that one of his problems is that he could not fixate. Mm -mm. And so I really found myself slipping in and out of the, the belief um, on the film because of a really inconsistent portrayal of, of what that was like. And it seemed like he struggled to, to, to balance or find the balance. And again, it may have been a, a directing choice or, or maybe it was a continuity error. I'm, I'm not sure, but that, that bothered me because sometimes (laughs) it was just, sometimes it was just Val Kilmer sometimes. And I, and I mentioned this earlier um, in our conversations, uh, the the whole Val Kilmer Kelly McGillis thing kept pulling me into Top Gun
1: too. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that they and and they barely shared any scenes in Top Gun too. Yeah, and they were yeah, brother yeah. and sister in this movie. Yeah, definitely yes. yeah. definitely pulled you into eighties vibes with those two. Yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. <laughs> I I I absolutely can see where you're coming from with that one. It must have been nice for them though to see each other again after almost oh, yeah. fifteen years. To do, the, to do that movie.
5: The cataracts are acting like a curtain across the window of sight. And if the disease to the retina is reduced or in check, which is impossible to know at this point, but if that is the case, using this new procedure, there's a very good possibility we can give you sight. Sounds expensive. Well, I think there's an opportunity for all of us here. Uh, not often do we get to restore sight to someone with extended blindness. Uh, I'm sure we can get the Institute to pick up the bill here. I've been through all this before. Yeah, well, believe me, I know. but it's nothing as invasive as what you went through as a child. I mean, uh, 25 years ago, cataract surgery was in the Dark Ages. We've come a long way since then, and uh, Dr. Goldman here will be performing the surgery. He's one of our best. What if it doesn't work? Well, then you'd be no worse off than you are now. Basically, what have you got to lose?
1: We've mentioned Sheryl Jennings a little bit. Um, and I just kind of want to give the the listeners a background on who Sheryl Jennings was. And then we'll talk about Sheryl's and then how it was recreated for Virgil's disorder. And we'll talk about their blindness in this first segment. So as we said, Dr. Oliver Sacks wrote this movie um, really big in the neuropsych and um, related fields if you are in psychology and you talk about the brain if you don't know who oliver Sacks is you're kind of um you're kind of a dweeb right if you don't know (laughs) you've been living
2: under a rock (laughs) absolutely
1: right so he had a patient well kind of technically uh cheryl jennings was somebody else's patient but he went in the 1990s to talk about his story to Oliver Sacks, and Oliver Sacks was a practicing physician at the time, Um, and so they talked about him. So Shirl's problem uh, was um, that he had retinitis pigmentosa and additional disorders associated with that in his eyes. His eyes basically just didn't work properly as one who was cited would say, right? If we give a standard operating procedure for the eyes his eyes were not doing that. And so by the age of 10, he could not distinguish uh, he could only distinguish light from dark. He knew when um it was light out or when there's lights on and when it was dark, and that was it. No shadows, no contours, no information about where the light ends and begins. And in 1991, he saw an ophthalmologist to remove the cataracts that were just uh, behind his uh, corneas. And so we got those removed, and some of his vision returned. And he was overwhelmed by all of that information, because as you learn, and as we have found in clinical writings, whether you're a physician or a psychologist that focuses on vision or other senses, The brain is pretty plastic, especially when you're talking about a blind child. Those sensory inputs and outputs are redirected elsewhere, so his visual memory and visual perception were mostly non-existent because those connections were made in service of other senses. So he was super overwhelmed and had to go through a an extensive period of visual object recognition learning, so he could replace vision with smell and touch, which we see in the film. Um, and like Katie and said, it was uh, from a story in an anthropologist on Mars. Now, unfortunately, after a bout of pneumonia, which caused some asphyxiation in his brain, led to some some areas of brain death, his vision mostly degraded. And at that point, he could see some motion and some colors, not even all of the colors of the spectrum. And so that is the. Clifnos version of Sheryl Jennings Fal Val Kilmer actually went and spoke with him while they were adapting this film and the screenplay Val Kilmer spent some time learned about his story spent time looking at his mannerisms by that time Cheryl was mostly blind again and then to end this sort of real life recap as I said in the intro Mira Sorvino plays Amy Bennett and uh, a uh, architect who was inspired by Cheryl's real life partner barbara and they're sort of on and off again relationship that ended on again until Sheryl's death in 2003 so that's the cliff notes version and so katie ann i wanted to get your uh breakdown as as you've mentioned teaching from a disabilities perspective we're going to talk about blindness and so what is retinitis pigmentosa what are cataracts what is the situation in the film associated with virgil's blindness
2: Well, so one of the things that I found really interesting about this and, and might not be obvious to to someone who doesn't work in vision or isn't as familiar with it is that Mm -hmm. he really was dealing with two different visual um, distortions or or problems. Yeah. Uh, One being the retinitis pigmentosa. And what that is, is it's a degeneration of the retina. So the one of the things that's really cool that that your listeners might not know is that the the retina is actually brain tissue and wow. I, I just love yeah. that that's yeah and and it's when when your brain is developing there's little buds that actually kind of come off of the the brain itself and they they migrate forward and they form the retina itself um that's awesome so they're kind of an ex, an exposed piece of brain tissue um, but uh, <laughs> they yeah. So I'm geeking out on that. i sorry. I love it. That. Keep going. Um, <laughs> but so retin- retinitis pigmentosa is this degeneration where um, a lot of times it, it'll start um, in the macula. And at least that's my understanding with this particular um, w- with uh, Virgil's character or, mm-hmm. or uh, Cheryl's actual situation and the macula is the area around the um fovea where you have your your high resolution vision i mean that's where you focus things that you really want to look mm-hmm. at yep and so that was one one issue and this disorder you know causes the slow degeneration or breakdown mm-hmm. um of those those uh, that part of the eye and that's really If you want to think of the eye as um, something that converts light into brain signals, that's what the retina does. It's kind of like the I know a lot of people use different analogies, but I'm going to say it's a little bit like the keyboard on your computer. When Mm -hmm. light hits the retina, then it turns that light signal into a neural impulse mm-hmm. so if you were typing on your computer keyboard it turns those little button taps into letters or something like that
1: i like so that that's analogy. the way i would yeah yeah i like that analogy. that's the
2: way i would just des- would describe it so basically um, over time, his, his keyboard, uh, more and more of the keys were no longer working. Um, for example, I have a, 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 a little computer that I take with me and the five and the six on the keyboard don't work because I spilled tea on it once. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now if that were to progressively spread across the keyboard, um, then that would, you know, be like retinitis pigmentosa. Mm-hmm. So that was one issue that he was dealing with. The other issue, of course, is the cataracts. And the cataracts, uh, that's maybe a term that more of us are familiar with. Sure, um, yeah.
1: It happens more, it's more common in, in elderly populations, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, and and cataracts are when you get basically clumps of protein or detritus or just basically uh, impurities in the lens of the eye so on the outside of your eye you have the cornea um that's the clear part and then you have the iris that's the colored part of the eye Mm -hmm. and then the lens sits behind the iris and it does some focusing some minor adjustments it's it's like the fine focus on your on your binoculars or your camera yeah you know that that does the last tweaking to fix to fixate something in. In the fovea at the back of your eye, mm-hmm. and um, with cataracts, you get this cloudiness in that you get these these uh, distortions, and it reduces the amount of light that can get into the eye, mm-hmm. and it also then um, impairs the the lens's ability to focus that image. Yeah. So, getting back to the movie, sorry, I geeked out on all that. But that's, <laughs> this, this is that's what I find really interesting and fun. Um, in the in the film, he and in reality, he had two disorders, two conditions yeah. that he was dealing with. Right. And and the original idea was the thought. Um, and I think that cataract surgery, I don't know. It wasn't new. Cataract surgery has actually been around for a long time. Right. Um, in really frightening formats but anyway uh, <laughs> more more recently it's gotten very very good my my parents both had cataract surgery um and it was it was painless and and effective but they they can basically uh replace that lens with uh either cadaver lens or something um
1: isn't or, it wild or, uh, uh, yes that's wild they can replace the 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 lens for for those of you who don't know the lens is made of the same protein keratin as your fingernails and Mm -hmm. so they grab the uh and 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 uh, the what happens to keratin as it dries out is it gets Mm -hmm. more solid and less translucent so you don't want like too uh too dry a keratin right if you're gonna get a cadaver lens it has to be it Mm -hmm. has to be in that um aqueous solution that your eye is in to remain translucent for that focusing of light so wild
2: yeah yeah i i i don't know you might you might need to edit this part out but (laughs) it's it's best to have a really fresh cadaver lens (laughs) right
1: you know what anyway you make a lot of sense yep yeah Yep.
2: all right so yeah that that so they can replace that and they can, but they can't, they can't fix or replace the, um, the retina itself. Mm -mm. And so, um, the, I think the premise of the film was that they were going to replace his lenses, um, because cataract surgery, you know, was possible Mm -hmm. and they thought maybe it was just the cloudiness that was disrupting his ability to see. And, um, that maybe his retina would still be functional and they couldn't inspect the retina because of the cloudiness of the cataracts. And, um, they were hoping that his retina still had some function and, Mm -hmm. um, or his keyboard, so to speak, still had some function.
1: Uh, so just to add, um, into the, into the discussion here. So he's getting the cataract surgery and they're thinking that his retinitis pigmentosa wasn't, uh, advanced along enough so this and and it was billed as this like new experimental surgery and uh one of the questions that's raised in the movie is like how are we gonna pay for this like Virgil's Mm -hmm. just a massage therapist in upstate New York at a um you know at a getaway club and and they're like, oh yeah, no, the, the this is experimental. I'm sure the organization slash institution <laughs> will pay for it. And I was just like, this is 1990s math right now. Yeah, uh, in 1990s healthcare, imagine uh being and and the interesting thing is that there is a really cool parallel to real life. In a situation where a patient would definitely not have the funds to in mm-hmm. go through a uh experimental, uh fresh, new, not a lot of data kind of treatment. And I don't know if you're you're familiar with this case, Katie Ann, but there is a new treatment for sickle cell where so if you're not familiar with this, this is a blood disorder where where the uh red blood cells are sickle shaped so they they look like sickles um which means they can't transport oxygen uh because right. their hemoglobin is misshapen um and right. so it leads to a lot of um issues and uh crispr the gene editing technology has been used to modify the bone marrow Cells mm, which creates this is what I
2: didn't know about,
1: which creates red blood cells. Um, and so CRISPR, then the gene editing was used in this woman, um, somewhere in the south, maybe Louisiana. I'm not sure. Um, NPR has been tracking this woman for a long time. She could definitely not, um, she was bedridden, could definitely, she had uh, several kids, couldn't do anything with those kids and volunteered for this treatment and she is up and at 'em and she wow. is she basically got a new lease on life um amazing thing and of course one of the open questions is is this permanent are are is, mm-hmm. is like her b- bone marrow going to produce uh correctly mm-hmm. shaped blood cells for the rest of her life. Is she going to continue need continuous treatment? What is, what is the prognosis for her? She's like, you know what? I don't really care about all of that right now. I'm just so happy that I can um, like live life, not from a bed basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting because we see the progression of Virgil throughout the movie going through the surgery, being overwhelmed, like Sterl said he was, um, with all of the new visual information. Apparently, he could see enough to where he didn't have to walk around with his cane. He didn't have to um, wear sunglasses or anything like that, like a a blind person generally does um, in public. Um, And then we see... A bad news bears come up in the movie where the doctor says uh, or Virgil first experiences Mm -hmm. um, bouts of visual uh, we'll call it um, whirlwinds maybe Mm -hmm. periods of where he's just like he gets too much information and it makes him woozy dizzy disoriented that kind of thing so what he is uh, attempting to do is then hide that from Amy and his doctor's like, you know what? Can't do anything about it. Your your retina is bad, I guess. They don't go into too much detail about you know. why he starts to lose his vision again. It's just, you know, it just happens.
2: Well, they, I think they say something about it. I can't remember if they say something about it being not strong enough or that it just I can't remember. yeah, but the implication was that it just couldn't handle all the new information or something like that.
1: Yeah, which is strange. Jenny's school.
3: She's really great with these kids. Huh. You see that guy across the street? Over in the doorway. Uh, He's chain-smoking, right?
4: Oh my god, yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> That's my friend Bruce. <laughs> we watch the game together sometimes. Oh, here comes Nancy. She's the librarian. Gets me any book I want in Braille. Hey, Nancy.
4: Hey, Virgil. I got that book in for you.
3: Still haven't got that old jalopy fixed.
4: <laughs> no, if I got it fixed, how would you know it was me. <laughs> Hi. Nancy, Hi.
3: this is Amy. Amy, this is Nancy. Nice Hi, Amy. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
4: Have Gotta fun. Go. be careful, honey. He's all hands.
3: Be nice.
4: Yeah. Ah. <laughs> nice town you have here. Seems to be very popular with the ladies.
3: Oh, yeah. moved here when I was eight. They figured it was a good place for me to grow up in. It's a bit geriatric, but it works.
4: Do you mind me asking how long you've been blind?
3: No. Not at all. Started when I was one and completely gone by the time I was three. Congenital cataracts with a healthy dose of retinitis pigmentosa thrown in for good measure.
4: Uh, So... So you, you see no bright lights?
3: Nothing? Nope. Blind as a bat. Actually, blinder. Um, bats its sonar. Wish I had that sonar. I don't have a sixth sense. I don't have a fifth one. Never wrote a book like Helen Keller. Wish I could play the piano like Ray Charles. I really wish I could sing like Stevie Wonder.
1: But I can't. Got it. So before we move, uh, before we get into the break, uh, Katie, and I wanted to talk about the portrayal of blindness in the movie with mm-hmm. the caveat that we are both sighted individuals and we cannot speak for the blind. We're just coming at this from uh, from a learned perspective, talking about blindness in our in our sensation and perception courses. So what was yeah. your sense of the blindness portrayal in the movie?
2: Well I kind of go back to what I said earlier about how it was inconsistent there they they did want to show that he was capable and functional in his environment that there's the ice skating scenes and to me that opened a lot of questions i wanted to know how he had learned how to skate and 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 what his experience was like that as someone who has ice skated on a pond that <laughs> is a really wild um, sensory experience you know it's not smooth ice it's it's rattly and bumpy and i think that would be extremely challenging for someone who is it's challenging for someone who is sighted but then again maybe his experience um and his his ability to use touch and kinesthetics you know sensory knowledge of where your body is
4: mm-hmm.
2: and and auditory processing helped him with that yeah but um I think there was there was there was strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. The the fact that he was a massage therapist, which I think that was accurate, right? The the actual character was a massage therapist or the actual person. I found that really interesting because it did kind of capitalize on his strengths.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So,
2: I don't know if I've answered your question. I feel like I've because I, I don't know if I can really talk about the portrayal of blindness without. Having extensive firsthand knowledge of someone who really is totally blind. I have mm-hmm. had a former student who who literally did have retinitis pigmentosa. Mm-hmm. And I know the, the student um, is fine with I've asked the, them for their permission to talk about their experiences mm-hmm. um, because they would even come and talk to my class while they were still here. Um, but the interesting thing is their retinitis pigmentosa progressed from the peripheral to the central. Yeah. And all they had left was the macula and yeah. their and their fovea. Yeah. And um, they talked a lot about how see how they saw the world basically through a window.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I've heard that uh, at, at a, a lot distance. before. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. Um, from your interaction with that student and how they mm-hmm. navigated their space. Uh, mm-hmm. similarities, differences in how it was uh, presented yeah. in the movie.
2: I think that, um, Val did a good job of emulating some of the behaviors and, and necessary behaviors mm-hmm. for this, that the student did as well. The student used a cane mm-hmm. to navigate their environment because they didn't have peripheral vision. So they needed to know the width of things and, and sure. distance and it helped them with depth perception. Mm hmm. And also the scanning movements of, uh, you know, uh, moving his head around Mm -hmm. as Val Kilmer's character did and not, I think those of us that are sighted tend to be very self-conscious about our physical behaviors and mannerisms (laughs) and um, both Kilmer's character and then also my former student, you know, had some gestures and expressions and um movements that you know maybe are not that are unique to them i'll put it that way yeah
4: Um, i think that's a great way to put it and
2: the yeah and and uh that do tend to characterize individuals who may be blind i don't want to stereotype anyone but the the yeah kind of the Looking off into the distance, if you can call it that, because you don't even know that they're looking. <laughs> right. Yeah. But those kinds of things.
1: We we spend so much time. We spend so much time looking at the gaze of others because of mm-hmm. the evolutionary advantage of. Mm-hmm. knowing what other people are looking at knowing what other animals mm-hmm. are looking at right whether mm-hmm. or not a an animal or predator is looking at us and um mm-hmm. with uh drooling lips that kind of thing yes
2: yes <laughs> right so
1: we spend a lot of time looking at people's gazes and i remember when i was young focusing on i i still have problems with um social uh it not not in not on a uh, spectrum level but like just like <laughs> social pleasantries these kinds of things is still they uh-huh. still are mystifying to me but one of the things that uh i kind of didn't listen to people saying was don't stare and i would just and it wasn't uh, from a place of malice i was just really very curious at Mm -hmm. um the blind people that I would encounter in my life and I would spend a lot of time looking at them. And Mm -hmm. of course, there's the, you know, the don't stare, but at the same time, I know that they don't know that I'm looking at them. Um (laughs) and so that's another thing, right? People stare at blind people because we know that they're not looking at us. And so we tend, I I won't say we, so we're violating
2: I, a social norm because yes, we think they
1: don't know. Absolutely. Because we think they don't know. And I'll just speak for myself here as a curious person. I learned a lot about how blind people navigate their worlds and sure. becoming very observant about how a cane is used. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the reasons for wearing sunglasses um, in all circumstances because it's for some blind people, light, too, like just light itself is too much. And then, like, uh, how they move their heads around. I thought Val Kilmer did a decent job of doing that. But, like he said earlier, um, he does make, even before he gains his sight uh, in the movie, uh, back he um he does make a lot of of eye movements that mm-hmm. seem like he's just looking at various points and I wonder if like you said if it was a direction um like hey Val look at this point in the tree while you're you know skating with Mira over here or whatever mm-hmm. so it'll give you a point mm-hmm. to just like focus on as you're moving around the pond or whatever. Um, So Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. The other thing that I thought that I'll add here before we take a break is Amy's, not Amy, excuse me, um, Kelly McGillis's character, um, his sister, and how protective Mm -hmm. of his life that she is. She's like, he lives up here. He lives here in upstate New York. He's got a simple life. He knows where everything is. He knows who everyone is. And Mm kind of he... He doesn't have to um, navigate a world for sighted people in the same Mm -hmm. way that he would if he goes to New York with you, you Mm homewrecker, you homewrecker, you, Amy. Yeah. 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 How dare you? Like, she's very. um, And then, of course, I think, well justified anger when Amy comes up with, you know, this plan talking with the doctor and trying to you know not necessarily convince but maybe do some subtle persuasion uh Mm -hmm. of of virgil and and getting this and a very interesting character we don't have time to get into amy as a as a kind of a monster character but you know (laughs) there i i would listen to that argument i would listen to that argument but we have more show to discuss because we have what sensation and perception is all about and that is uh talking about all the psychological ways that someone knows what they're looking at right so stay tuned for more at first sight discussion after this break are you a big fan of the Cinema Psych podcast, a connoisseur of the compelling stories and intriguing insights that we have on this show, well, show your love in style with our premium podcast merchandise. Yeah, that's right. I've updated the podcast store from ultra comfy hoodies, perfect for cozy podcast binges to sleek coffee mugs that add a dash of personality to your morning routine. Our merchandise store has it all. I've added so many new products and it's designed to withstand countless listening marathons. There are a lot of episodes. I think you'll love them. But wait, there is more. Every week there is a new promotion turning up the volume on value so keep an eye out for our exciting special promotions every other week 15 percent off in between sometimes there's a special 25 percent off day and then sometimes there's free shipping it's the perfect way to score your cinema psych podcast merch for less I'm excited to have expanded the merchandise offerings, but I'm really excited to say that new designs are coming up and you can put these designs on all of the merchandise. So keep an eye out for new arrivals in the design section. So don't just listen, wear it. Flaunt it, live it. Visit our merchandise store at cinemasychpod.swan psych.com slash store to shop your love for the cinema psych podcast today. Remember, every purchase goes directly to supporting this show. And of course, thanks for listening to this show. I love doing it. Now let's get back into it. And we are back with Dr. Katie-Ann Scogsberg talking at first sight, the 1999 movie based on Oliver Sacks' patient, Cheryl Jennings. Uh, And in this segment, what we are going to do is talk about the visual perception that sort of encapsulates the middle portion of the movie. The beginning portion is the... Blooming, I guess we'll call this the first act, the blooming romance between Amy and Virgil, and um his blindness as a central feature of their relationship. But the correction of that blindness leads us into the second act, which is chock full of visual perception learning and concept. Uh, nuggets oh it's it's it the morsels here are um, plentiful now this is the (laughs) part of the movie where my students focus uh, almost entirely on when they write their uh, film analyses and like because the morsels are there so the first and largest set of morsels is the broad concept of Object recognition. So, Katie Ann, can you describe just broadly what object recognition is in visual perception?
2: Sure. So, um, again, if you kind of think about assembling things, um, maybe like words on your, you know, as you're writing them on a page, um, as visual information comes into your eye, the retina turns it into Neural signals—you can almost think of that as like a a, a code, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a a little tapping rate at how fast the the neurons are firing—and your brain then has to decode. It's kind of like Morse code, right? Mm-hmm. It has to decode it into something meaningful, something that has is is generally attached to a memory and. Uh, often has a name and a function associated with it, mm-hmm. and so that information is kind of crazy. That visual information goes from the front of your head all the way to the very back of your head mm-hmm. in the occipital lobe, where it gets decoded. And the first step in that process is basically figuring out the edges of things, mm-hmm. of finding the edges of objects. So there's there's lines and curves, and you know contrast and color. And all of that stuff is decoded at the back of the brain, but it's also decoded separately. We call it parallel processing. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a cluster of neurons or a little portion of the brain that does, you know, edges at a certain angle and another portion of the brain that does color and, you know, all these bits of information. And it's still not decoded yet. It's just kind of these representations And then that information gets fed forward or passed forward into the brain and i mean literally forward it goes from the back of the brain and starts moving towards the um there's a region of the brain called the temporal lobe or the inferior uh, temporal lobe region so it's kind of the lower area of the temporal lobe Mm -hmm. and that's actually the part that's kind of behind your ears Mm -hmm. and um that region of the brain uh helps make connections between your memories of you know that particular angle or color or whatever combination and uh the name of that object um and uh, and maybe memories of I'm going to be careful here because there's another part of the brain that also that really does. We call it the how region or the the where region uh-huh. um in the parietal lobe. So it's kind of crazy, again, because it gets separated. Mm-hmm. Um, those those colors and edges and shapes, you know, all get sent to two different regions. I'm gesturing here, which I realize does not work <laughs> in podcasts, <laughs> but um the, the, there's another part of the brain that is the parietal region that's kind of above your ear. I'll, I'll put it that way, uh, above and behind your ear. And um, that one tells you where something is. And sometimes it also is called the how region mm-hmm. or what what you do with that mm-hmm. that object. Right. And then eventually, um, it all comes together to where it, it actually has some sort of meaning or some sort of representation something that's meaningful to you mm-hmm. um, the most most people who are interested in psychology have heard of the hippocampus mm-hmm. the memory region of the brain it it has a, a a role in kind of connecting all of this information but really it's that inferior um, temporal region the the and literally this is so confusing but we call it the what region of the brain mm-hmm. um, and that tells you what an object is uh brain then takes all of that information all of those little bits of information say uh it's something that is red that has lots of edges mm-hmm. um and some round things towards the bottom mm-hmm. and maybe some long lines on it and you think okay red long lines round things on the bottom moving moving quickly oh that might be a fire truck ah Okay,
1: I was wondering where the, you were the, going that, with that. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh oh.
2: Does it? That- <laughs> so, um, you the, you kind of assemble all the bits and pieces um, to to recognize things, and and sometimes this goes wrong. Yeah, that's always the fun thing. That's what we love teaching in S and P is when when you can have uh, this. What creates visual illusions? Yeah, is absolutely. the fact that these bits and the pieces of information come in and they're ambiguous Mm -hmm. and our brain will assemble them in several different ways. And sometimes that ends up being confusing. Yeah.
1: And we, we see things that aren't there. Right.
0: Okay. Virgil says here you went blind as a child before you developed a visual vocabulary. You have a problem with depth of field, space, shape, size, and distance. It's fascinating. There's only been 20 cases of this in the last 200 years. Basically, your eyes work, but your brain hasn't learned to process the information. You are mentally blind. Neurologists call this visual agnosia. Well, I call it pretty screwed up. (laughs) That's a much better term. I'll bring it up at the next meeting. Although, it would be difficult to get grant money for the pretty screwed up foundation. I have something I'd like to read to you. Oh, Ruggler? I made it myself. Damn it. Uh, My glasses, I can never find them. Mrs. Finster, help! Thank you. Happens all the time. Okay, Alberto Valvo. Uh, Sight restoration after long-term blindness. Ah. One must die as a blind person to be born again as a sighted person. However, it is the interim, the limbo between two worlds, that is so terrible. There you go, pal. You're in limbo.
4: Right, that's it? Limbo? I mean, that book doesn't have anything else that might help us with Virgil's condition?
0: Limbo's not that bad. It's like New Jersey. You can see where all the good stuff is happening. You just have to get there. I know, I know. You were expecting Anne Bancroft. A dramatic breakthrough out by the water pump. I'm sorry, I'm just a professor. I teach people how to teach the blind, how to become independent. Unfortunately, there's no manual on what you're going through. I'd like to help, but like the rest of things in life, it's really up to you. Are you crazy?
3: I'm I'm completely confused. You said you'd like to help, so we came here for help.
0: All right, all right. You want a lesson? Yes. All right. Here we go. Lesson number one. Repeat after me. The rain in Spain stays... me. luck. I'm kidding. It's a joke. What's this? It's an an apple. Good, good. You've now won the toaster oven. Okay. What's this? It's an apple. Good, but is it an apple or just a picture of an apple?
3: Okay. So, uh, this is
0: a joke, right? What are you saying, that my eyes lie? your eyesight can and will play tricks on you. No matter what I could teach you, no matter what exercises I could give you, they'll still play tricks on you. You've got to learn to trust your instincts. I don't
3: have any instincts. My instinct is to close my eyes and feel my
0: way out of your office. Well, there you go. That's a self-preservation instinct. But you have others. (laughs) Look, Virgil, you have to learn to see just like you learn to speak. Perception, sight, life is about experience about reaching out and exploring the world for yourself it's not enough to just see we, we we've got to, we've got to look as well
1: in the movie before Virgil gains his um before Virgil regains his vision, how does he recognize objects
2: ah uh. Yeah. So um, he tends to recognize objects by touch Uh and or by auditory, uh, you know, kind of auditory identification. Like there's Mm -hmm. a scene where they're walking down the street and he's describing everything to her. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: And he's uh, saying that there's a lady that's coming out and, you know, describing exactly what she's going to do and, and all these things. And that there's a tree over here and a car, or I don't, I don't remember the. You can probably play a sound clip here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the um, standing in the rain, just listening to the rain. Yes, yes, it's a very. I would say the listening to the rain is a blind trope. So it gets Mm. and what I mean by that is it gets overused with blind characters Mm. because you will uh, you will see that in the like the daredevil Marvel stuff Mm -hmm. where his Mm -hmm. superpower is being blind, but all of his other senses are like tuned to the max. He can. Uh, know mm-hmm. who a person is just by listening to their heartbeat or whatever, and so yeah, they do that whole trope. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is based in touch. He knows what things are mm-hmm. when he can touch them, and I think obviously that makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> Get it? It makes a lot of sense. Oh, but I'm done. Okay. <laughs> um, but let's, very punny. Thank you. But let's let's jump. Uh, let's fast forward to now. He is sighted. But he is struggling. He does not mm-hmm. know what he's looking at. So they go and see a a doctor who runs a school for blind children, helping them navigate a sighted world. Right? Um. And mm-hmm. so he's got uh, this doctor is a sighted person. He's played by Nathan Lane. Great, great character. Um. I- I'm glad Nathan Lane got his you know, got his time in this movie too short. If you ask me, yeah, but great yeah. nevertheless. And he uh, explains to the audience without using any fancy words, visual agnosia. How does he describe mm-hmm. this for the audience? Katie Ann?
2: Well, he describes it as the fact that um, he Virgil can't connect the information from his incoming senses with what he knows about the object or or what that object or the, the his memory of that object yeah and so he he helps him relearn that information by um having him look at something and then touch it mm-hmm. and recognize it and then go back and forth and 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 learn the visual representations um, and associating He he basically talks about association agnosia Which is can't make the connection between the sensory information and what that object is used for what it what it is.
1: And so he uses an apple and he shows the apple to Virgil and he's like, what's this? And Virgil doesn't know what it is. And he hands him the apple and Virgil goes, oh. It's an apple. And he kind of feels defeated at that moment because he's like, oh, well, I should know what an apple Mm -hmm. is. I should know what an apple looks like. And the key Mm -hmm. word there is should Mm -hmm. because society Mm -hmm. like it's an apple, bro. It's one of the most common fruit representations out there. Like you should know what an apple is just by looking at it. But of course, he doesn't have those connections in his memory as you say and this is what you see in like stroke survivors who then have visual agnosia afterward yeah they can't name an object but once you put it in their hands they're like oh these were key- these are keys right yeah and i think the interesting thing uh, yeah. that happens immediately after virgil is holding this apple is there's a picture of an apple in a magazine that dr webster pulls out yes. and he's like yeah okay what's this then well, because it's a picture of an apple, Virgil can't get the touch information from that, which I think is a critical mm-hmm. thing about sight that we don't spend enough time mm-hmm. talking about, that there are physical things in the world that our brains are evolutionarily attuned to, right? Because we navigate a 3D environment. But then we can also represent those with 2D images. And because yeah. we spend a lot of time doing that, we learn that Virgil doesn't have that.
2: Yeah, I think that's really, um, we often think about how three dimensional space is harder to represent than, you know, two dimensional images. But in reading um, the anthropologist, on Mars, you know, segment, um, they talk about how the blind individuals, their whole world is three dimensional. Everything is represented mm-hmm. three dimensional. And as soon as you give them something two dimensional, it's like I what <laughs> they doesn't have a yeah. representation. This is a mind. sheet of so paper.
1: Yeah, <laughs> this is a sheet. This is a yeah, sheet of paper. Yeah. And
2: you can't. You, you can't get any information from that. You know, it reminds me, um, and again, this might be a, a bit of a tangent, but I saw a thing on, I think it was CBS Sunday morning the other day. It was an artist who is creating, who is recreating, and maybe I'm getting the show wrong, but they're recreating famous mm-hmm. artwork for the blind and they're oh, making they it love all tactile. That. And I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah, which which leads us to the montage, so to speak, of the movie where uh, Virgil and Amy are living in New York City and Amy's apartment and she's going to work like normal doing her architect thing. And and Virgil now has to learn how to be a sighted person, which is an interesting thing to say for an adult, right? Adults don't generally Mm -hmm. have to do this. In regaining a uh, sense, more like losing a sense, and they have to to learn how to to navigate with with less information, not more <laughs> information. So I really like this. Uh, Amy's um, neighbor, uh, a, a a younger boy, comes and helps Virgil in like <clears throat> stuff that you would do with a toddler right show them the object Mm -hmm. can you name it oh do you have to touch it okay well that's kind of like um you know if you were doing like a point based system you get three points for naming the object just by sight (laughs) uh minus one point if you have to 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 hold it that kind of thing you know and then you do this great montage of virgil just learning basic household items
2: yeah, I think that's, and and I think that that probably is a more accurate representation of the whole process and probably something a lot of us don't think about, wouldn't experience. I think experience. we take it for granted, for sure. Um, one of the things that I, can I jump into a criticism here for a second? Sure. So one of the things that really frustrated me, and, and it's probably something your students bring up, is the idea, and and I think this would be really hard for a non-expert audience to understand, but that. When they first take the bandages off, um, Mm -hmm. the images, the way that they represent the um, Virgil's sight is just a blurry Mm -hmm. camera shot, you know, that it's just blurry. And then eventually it comes into focus. And with knowing how visual agnosia works and knowing how the visual system works, I wish they would have represented that with like a kaleidoscope. That would have been yeah, so much that more would accurate better. of what his experience is um, because they there's no way for Virgil to know what a face looks like. There's no way, you know, he's never had that, the the spatial representation, that information coming in through his eyes before. Now he's done it with his hands. Yeah yeah but not with his eyes
1: yeah i think that's a a a really good point um because even if he was cited as a child because we we learned Mm -hmm. this backstory of his dad running out on the family Mm -hmm. um because he didn't want to raise a blind boy And, and so maybe virgil as a baby got all of this visual information about what faces look like and things like that but then you know we also know that the brain gets rid of all yeah. of this information as you grow yeah. um, because it's not needed. And then so if blindness occurs after that, then he may not have those connections. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to give the um, writers, Oliver Sacks and, you know, the the description from Sheryl, uh, the benefit of the doubt here and say that um, – uh, Cheryl probably did have an idea of what faces looked mm-hmm. like. I don't think we could say that as a fully like uh, from uh, you know a congenital blind person mm-hmm. would have that representation. That would be kaleidoscope, mm-hmm. definitely. But I agree with your overall point that they're representing his vision, more or less his eyes as a camera, mm-hmm. and we know mm-hmm. that the the eye is. Absolutely not a camera. And I would hazard to say that it's actually better than a camera. Our fovea has a far more resolution than even some of the more powerful cameras th- that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have our brain, which is so adaptable mm-hmm. to visual information that a camera sensor might not be. Mm-hmm. So I would agree. I would agree with you that the, the premise of visual play in the movie kind of lacks some imagination. Oh, let's just make it like a camera. It goes from blurry to focus. Yeah. It's like no. I don't I don't think I don't think that is because I can hold a uh a Coke can in my hand and still make it look blurry by just changing yeah. where my eyes are focused, yeah. right? So it, it, just because he's holding it doesn't mean that the can now is is uh, is all focused. Yeah. So I will I will grant you that one lack of imagination on the filmmakers part. But I but uh, but at the same time I will say let's be honest this was a run of the mill '90s dramedy love story yeah. right <laughs> romantic yeah. dramedy so they didn't really. There wasn't a lot of avant-garde or uh, creativity when it came to the more psychological and perceptual aspects. That to say that I think they did a pretty good job of somebody who has to go through agnosia uh, training. Sure,
5: yes. That was pretty good. Mm
1: -hmm. That was pretty Mm -hmm. good.
5: Dream. uh, Disorientation. The images and colors had no meaning for him. But now, just uh, weeks after surgery, Mr. Adamson has mastered the ability to define shape and distance, giving him confidence to move about his environment. However, he still becomes confused by new images, just as a, a child would be fascinated by everyday objects that we may take for granted. Look up.
4: What is it? It's art.
3: This is art? Oh, no, that has to be art. Look at that. That is beautiful.
4: Uh, no, that's just somebody being destructive. The words read something pretty nasty, Virgil.
5: Is
3: it?
4: It says pig shit.
5: And though his progress is steady, Virgil is still very reliant on his touch to interpret objects in his surroundings.
3: It's a dog. I'm sorry,
5: yes. And his understanding of three-dimensionality is very limited and confounding to him. Oh,
4: wow, listen to the bells.
5: What's that?
3: That lump?
4: Oh, that's, that's a homeless person.
3: You just walked right past him. He didn't even look.
4: Well, I mean, some things you choose not to see. I mean, you can't look at
2: everything, Virgil.
3: I don't want to look away. I want to see. I want to see everything. What
2: the hell are you
0: looking at? Get out of here!
5: He also has great difficulty with scanning. Basically, that's putting the whole picture together.
3: I've got over 10 years experience at Bear Mountain and all kinds, really. Deep tissue, therapeutic, shiatsu. That's fine. Let's get you started. Here's your I-9, W-4, Workman's Comp, basic employment package. Just fill these out, take them over to accounting at the back of the gym. Oh, gosh, you know what? I forgot my glasses. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take this home and fill it out, and I'll, I'll just bring it back, okay? All right. This includes his ability to read,
5: meaning he has a total lack of visual memory.
4: Sweetie, it might help if you kind of take the. Word. No, it
3: won't. It won't help, Amy. I told you before, it's not helping. I, I know. I know what I'm supposed to do. I just can't do it. Okay? I can't read. By the time I get to the last layer, I can't remember the first one. I can't fill out a goddamn application. I have to have somebody else do it for me, like I was a blind person. But I'm not blind. Your helping isn't helping.
4: Okay, I'm sorry.
5: This is an unexpected physiological flaw and one that we hope that uh, Virgil will be able to overcome.
1: So let's move into a more specific form of agnosia, prosopagnosia. This is a fancy word for lack of facial recognition. So imagine your brain as a, I don't know, your iPhone recognizing your face and face ID Mm -hmm. that your brain can do that kind of thing with other people's faces, including your own. Um, But people with prosopagnosia have this difficulty. So, Katie Ann, how was prosopagnosia uh, portrayed in the film?
2: Well, one of the interesting things that the first time that Virgil is um, looking at Amy and he wants to there's one scene where he wants to inspect her face, you know, after he's and Mm -hmm. he's and he's I think he even says, so this is a face. This is what a face looks like or something like that. Yeah. And um, yeah. And and again, I'm I'm gesturing here. I'm using my fingers to explore a an imaginary <laughs> face. And so in this case, he just simply doesn't even know what a face looks like, at least according to the way that he represents it there. Um, of course, he knows what it, what a face feels like. He has a mental representation uh-huh. of touch of a face. And so he's having to learn to make that association between the the you know relationship of that what's interesting though is his inability to recognize uh facial expressions um mm-hmm. constantly through the movie he's asking what's the space what's this space um and it's and not so much as who are you but what does that mean i he even says i haven't seen this space before you know and and yeah. that He's trying he he doesn't understand doesn't pick up on visual cues about you know emotional and and we take so again, we take so much of that for granted that um we understand what the other person is thinking or saying based on their facial expression, so he has to learn all of that information new. I mean, we all know how how frustrating it is to understand what someone else is saying when you're talking on a phone. Without FaceTime, you know, when when you yeah, actually yeah, are listening on the phone, then yet that's been uh-huh. Virgil's entire world, and now he has to learn to associate visual information with that emotional context, and yeah, I
1: I I think that's a great way to put it because we all struggle you know, with micro expressions, and it, micro expressions are so subtle. And dude was just trying to get by with broad facial expressions like happy and sad. Mm -hmm. And of course, he could he could contort his face. Um, He will definitely express his emotions on his face, just like everyone else Mm -hmm. does. A blind person does that regardless. But trying to interpret that from other people is really interesting because he, as a blind person, at least as portrayed in the movie, I'm not saying this about all blind people, have to extract so much more information from the nonverbals in the auditory signal,
4: mm-hmm.
1: right? So, sighted people get nonverbals not only in the auditory signal, but in facial expressions and gaze and everything like that. Why are you looking away? These kinds of things. But he had to extract. Every bit of information from that auditory signal that he could. So Amy could have Amy could be lying in her voice. And can he extract that lying uh, from her? But now he has the face to look at. And he's like, well, wait, I've heard your inflection. Mm -hmm. Does this match this new face? Is my representation of your auditory signal matching the face that you're putting on. Yeah.
2: Well, and and something else that I kept thinking about while I was watching it is, you know, competition for resources. So um he's he's yeah. allocated so much of his brain area to decoding auditory and tactile signals. Now we have this new input of of visual information so where is that information going? And is it having, you know, it's the brain is a little bit like a, a battery in the fact that you can only pull so much, so many resources to any one area. So where is that information yeah. going? Where is it? and And is it drawing down on the resources that he could be using for 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 decoding the auditory information. And you and I experienced that, you know, th- there's a, a, a meme on social media about, you know, having to turn the radio down so that you can read the street signs, you yeah. know, but that's yeah, true. Yeah. Well, there, mm-hmm. That is true because you have to allocate your resources. And so right. I'm wondering how much of his auditory input was being disrupted or lost due to the fact that he was now having Mm. to decode the visual information.
1: Yeah, I think that's a uh, that's a great point, because it's not as if your brain goes, I'm ready to do something different with what I currently use from the rest of the body. They show Virgil do uh, he does get tired Mm -hmm. and he does get fatigued. Mm -hmm more easily and I think that was a great uh, a great job from the filmmakers perspective to sh- have um, Virgil get fatigued from doing all of this and and, and more fatigue than someone who would just be like I'm sick of learning today yeah yeah <laughs> right No. Uh, but you're you make an excellent point that like something something's got to give. Yeah, well, something is likely to give. It's not
2: like our visual area is just sitting there waiting to be used, especially if in his right. case that the the occipital cortex has probably been recruited and remapped to do uh, auditory and tactile decoding and and representation
1: at least at least in the imagery department too because research does also suggest that these areas uh underutilized by by a blind person get projections from those other areas for imagery sake i can only imagine a somebody who is blind but also has uh aphantasia that is that is a quite the combination so uh, aphantasia for the folks that 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 don't know is the inability to uh, create mental images or the mental images aren't as vivid as as neurotypical individuals and so you add that to blindness how's that how does that work that's wild so another um aspect of visual perception that uh, occurs in the movie is depth perception Um, so Virgil almost gets run over by a taxi because he is just trying to figure out depth perception. There's this one interesting quick visual, uh, gag where he's looking at a taxi in the movie. And the way that the camera is set up is, is that he, he looks like he's like reaching for a taxi that's on the road, but then they switch the angle on us and it, shows that he's playing with a a model taxi Mm. so i i I thought that was good but uh katie ann describe what um depth perception is Mm. to the listeners
2: so this is one of those things that that even students in my uh smp class often struggle with sensation and perception class um it's one of the harder things to explain because um, you have to think about the fact that we have two eyes set on the front of our head and uh, we tend to focus uh, on something, an object in the distance. And if you think of a um, drawing lines that connect the center of our, connect your pupil to whatever it is that you're focusing on, and then a line that connects those two pupils, so you could create a triangle, okay? Does yeah. that work? And, yep, my work. And we literally use triangulation to figure out how far something is. So, how much our eyes have to turn in to focus on it. So, if you, you know, if you take your finger, and again, I'm gesturing in this podcast, but if you bring your finger closer to you, your eyes have to turn inward to stay focused on it. And that is one of the um, signals that tells us how close or how far away an object is. The um, right. yeah one of the other signals is is occlusion which is um it once something covers another thing up so uh, as you're i think the classic example is if you're riding in a car and you know you see fence posts moving and they're covering up the cow in the background. you know that the fence post is between you and the cow or you and the tree. So that's what we call occlusion. It's occluding or hiding the other thing. so that gives us a little information about maybe um, an ordinal or a sequential location of objects. and then the third cue that we use um, is this binocular disparity, and this is the one that's really hard for people to kind of grasp. yeah, the image <laughs> the image in the distance is projected to our brain uh projected to our occipital lobe and because our eyes are at two different locations each image gets a slight each eye gets a slightly different view of the world and so that's mm-hmm. where the word disparity comes from they're they're not the same visual angle they're not the same distance or sorry visual these are jargony words they they aren't the same picture. They don't. If you were to overlap them on top of each other, they wouldn't quite perfectly mesh. And if you've ever looked right. at the what's called a stereogram, these are those old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look like um, a viewfinder. Actually, the ViewMaster, the good old fashioned ViewMaster yeah. that gives you a three D image of things, absolutely, um, is is literally a binocular disparity image creator. Right. But what it does is it sends these two different images to each eye and our brain then tries to overlap those. And depending on how difficult it is to overlap those two images and how hard it is to line them up, it gives us an estimate of how far away something is how's that for an explanation
1: that was great it's really hard to do without visuals (laughs) yeah it really is uh it's funnily enough without visuals yeah that was i i that was great. Um, one of the things that I talk about with binocular disparity uh, is, of course, 3D movies mm-hmm. and yes. stereograms like the Viewmaster. Superb um, way to describe binocular disparity because our eyes are not in the same position. Now, Virgil didn't use his eyes, <laughs> didn't converge them, as you said, didn't care about occlusions if it wasn't in his immediate arm span vicinity or the span of his cane then um it was just an auditory or a smell and it didn't really have a necessary distance comparatively Mm -hmm. with something else right so we don't get depth perception per se from the auditory system we only get distance as far as as far as ha ha ha. we only get distance information as far as how far away is it from me but not comparatively speaking unless you had two sounds yeah and so Virgil didn't have to do any of this calculation computation brain computation but when he regained his sight and he was using his sight um, as his primary sense at that point he did have to use (laughs) Mm -hmm. you did have to get depth perception in line and i would get i I would say that uh while it is innate according to eleanor gibson and her research with the visual cliff while depth perception is an innate function not learned i think you still need to recognize that monocular depth perception that is with one eye this idea of occlusion is learned Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we have to get as much visual information as we can to do that learning to find that the uh moon in a basket mm-hmm. photograph mm-hmm. is just a play on perspective mm-hmm. and that you have the knowledge that um those things are really far one is really close and the other one's really far what? away and they just happen to be at the right distance for, to make the, you know the the moon in the basket kind of Yeah, that's
2: the whole concept of relative size that the image on your retina Mm -hmm. um, represents. You you have to know so you could have a fire plug out in the distance. And if it's, you know, if it's at the end of the block, it's it makes a very small image on the retina. And if it's right next Mm -hmm. to you, it makes a very large image on the retina. And it's your knowledge of how big fire plugs should be that lets you know how it, that that tells you you can't rely on that retinal image so the right the, yeah and and he does not and, have that experience there's no that yeah. kind of comes back to the taxi example just it, it's the right shape of a taxi but he's never had to think do the comparison or the the context analysis of that object in its space to know how far away it is
1: and i think i wanted to i, I want to add a little bit we we also get some depth perception information via uh, motion as mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. right whether something is moving towards us away from us or by us mm-hmm. um remaining at the same distance um and the 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 scene with him getting almost run over by a taxi was quintessential new yorker thing mm-hmm. uh, and so he you know he got his new yorker card for that but He's he's also needing to analyze the motion information that he gets from the taxi moving toward him. Right. Mm -hmm. So this image is getting bigger on his retina Mm -hmm. um, as it's moving toward him um, because he's standing still. But it's moving toward him and, and he has to to incorporate that information as well. And I kind of want to just like broadly say um, uh, to chime in what we were talking about a little bit earlier with all of this information and object recognition and all of the brain areas and uh, colloquial brain areas as KDN described them. This all comes down to a consciousness problem called the binding problem. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a really good answer for the binding problem, in that just the brain integrates all of this disparate information mm-hmm. and we have conscious awareness of mm-hmm. it. And I think it's a, I think this problem is the most, one of the most fascinating problems in consciousness. And it definitely jives down into like philosophy areas.
2: Yeah, I I'll, I'll let the philosophers uh, handle that. <laughs> I like I like decoding <laughs> everything right up until the the how is it we bring it and I'd love to know how we bring it all together. Um, you know, as I've talked earlier, it's it's all these little bits of information that are being decoded by certain brain regions and sent out into their uh, respective areas to where they're being represented. But how do we bring those together to create a Conscious experience, and and even when we remember things, we reactivate all of those disparate brain regions. You know, it's not like it's a yeah. memory just in one little spot. You you have the spot in the auditory cortex, and the olfactory cortex, and the parietal cortex that rep, that becomes activated. And and uh, yeah, how do we bring that together and create this conscious flow of experience? I, I don't know. And that had to be really overwhelming for someone who. You know, it's 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 kind of like for those of us that have our typical sensory systems, what would it be like if you suddenly had uh, yet another one? You know, what would it be like?
1: Yeah. If
2: all of a sudden mm-hmm. you could I'm trying to think of something fantastic. Yeah, I know that there's a there's a guy out there who is um, cre- he he was colorblind, but he created a system that allows him to hear ultraviolet and hear all the colors you know it transduces uh colors into sound very cool and and yeah and i think that would be really distracting you know but yeah i i I,
1: well i mean there there are the super memorists out there that um uh have these differently wired brains Mm -hmm. um you know synesthesia Mm -hmm. is is that i guess that extra sense that you're talking about Mm -hmm. where we not necessarily a new sense, but combined sensory experiences, which allow for better memory. There was the guy and I'm blanking on his name, but there was this, there was a guy who, um, couldn't forget a a damn thing in his life. He had like superb eidetic memory Mm -hmm. for, for everything. And it was, it was partly due to, um, his synesthetic experience of combining Mm -hmm. senses of, of touch combined with sound Mm -hmm. or uh, colors combined with textures and these kinds of things. Um, And I think, like you said, if, if it's not a gradual thing, uh, then it becomes overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the word of the day that we can put on Virgil's experience in this movie. He experiences an overwhelming sense of love for this new woman that he meets. Um, and because he, fi- he he has this overwhelming sense of, of love and this connection to her that he shares his blindness with her um in some in in ways that uh is kind of implied that he doesn't with other people, mm. and he has this overwhelming sense of love for her that he would go under this medical treatment that he didn't need mm-hmm. he couldn't afford mm-hmm. and didn't necessarily want at the very beginning like he he scoffs at Amy, right mm-hmm. um, and then he has this overwhelming experience of sightedness. That I, I don't think anyone really act uh, uh, like actually prepared him for. Right, right. And then he has this overwhelming sense of loss. Yeah. When he does start losing his vision again. And so, overwhelming, I think, is a very accurate term for everything that Virgil experiences in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So I want to thank Dr. Katie Ann Skogsberg for joining me to discuss At First Sight. Before we say goodbye, Katie Ann, is there anything that you'd like to plug? I know you've been on sabbatical this semester. What have you been working on?
2: So, yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, I do want to plug something uh, for those that are um, that are teachers out there that are listening, uh, whether you be college professors or, or uh, AP Psych or anything like that. Um, we have a, an ebook coming out through the society of teaching of psychology on alternative grading methods. So if you've heard All of right. yeah. So even though I'm a sensation and perception person, um, I, I, I'm also really into teaching. Um, mm-hmm. And so this book uh, ebook is, has information from individual faculty that have taught courses in psychology and neuroscience using um, specifications, grading, ungrading, mm-hmm and gamification so Mm -hmm. a couple of different alternative uh, teaching methods and also um, we are looking to follow this one up with um, another ebook looking at data um, you know experimental research on this so if you're doing research on um, alternative grading
1: methods uh, I'd love to hear from you excellent thanks again for joining the show Katie Ann
2: Thanks for having me. I've had a good time. And thanks for introducing me to this film. I'm definitely going to use it in my classes in the future.
1: Awesome. That's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, thanks for listening.